Welcome to everyone listening to the Aerospace Ambition podcast. This is Marius alongside my co-host Kieran. As aerospace engineers, we navigate the crossroads of sustainable aviation and AI. In this episode, we delve into how airlines view the mitigation of non-CO2 effects. We're excited to have a special guest with us to explore this subject further. Kieran, could you introduce our special guest today? Today we're joined by Dr. Alejandro Bloch from the International Air Transport Association, or IATA, at which he is the manager for New Energies and Technologies, and he was in charge of delivering IATA's Net Zero Roadmap. He has a PhD in Aerospace Propulsion and is a research visiting fellow at the Cranfield University. He is also a member of the Royal Aero Society and has authored several international publications on the topic of aviation emissions and the environment. With that, let's welcome Alejandro on the show. Hi, Alejandro. Hi, Marius. Thanks. Uh, and thank you, Karen, for inviting me. It's great to have you. And we've met last year in Madrid at the World Sustainability Symposium that IATA hosted. And so the first question, obviously, for our audience would be, What is the role of IATA? Uh, what are its goals and how does it work together with the entire ecosystem? Yeah, that's a good good question to start. So uh, we are an airline uh, trade association. We've got about 300 airline members and we do a lot of things for the airlines. So uh, we create uh, standards and recommended practices for many things, uh, sustainability being one of them. So we have a sustainability uh, certification, IENVA. Uh, and our airlines can sign up for that. So, for example, we will uh, tell airlines best practice to monitor waste or plastic use or water use, etc. cetera. Uh, that's on the, uh, some of the sustainability activities. We also have manuals for cargo, for dangerous goods handling, for checking in. So a lot of the things that you do when you take an airplane will be uh, passing through standards or practices that IATA will have recommended. Um, and then we also represent the airlines uh, in the United Nations. So in ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, which is the United Nations body for aviation, uh, the airlines are represented there by us. So yes, quite a, quite a lot of things. Um, on the transition to net zero emissions, we set strategy, we help our airlines understand the things that they can do. We engage with manufacturers, universities, um, OEMs, the United Nations on trying to see how we can scale up alternative fuels and new technologies to bring airlines to net zero by 2050. Yeah. All right. That will bring a very interesting perspective to our podcast for sure. You moderated at the at this event that I've just mentioned last year, you've moderated the panel discussion together with Mark Stettler from Imperial College and also Florian Alroggen from MIT. A very insightful panel discussion, very differentiated viewpoints and also interactive. And this just leads me to the question, um, if you enjoy these kinds of uh, panel discussions um, and uh, yeah, these kinds of occasions, because uh, it was really interactive and very engaging. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad that you liked it. And uh, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I think... Also speaking to Mark and Florian is always great, uh, both in a personal uh, level, but also having them on a panel. I think their perspectives were very interesting. Uh, I think that the, the non-CO2 scope or space is, 
is very cluttered by different ideas and opinions and so on. So being able to get two experts to talk a little bit about the science was actually very, very good and very insightful. Yeah. Do you reckon that this year at the next WSS event in Miami, there will be a similar amount of attention be given to the topic of contrail management or non-CO2 effects or rather more or less? Uh, I think that uh, perhaps just the same or, or more. I think it is uh, an increasing area of attention and concern. There is more and more information, more and more people are getting interested in the topic, more and more people want to get ed educated on the topic. So I, at the moment, I only see it on the rising. And you mentioned that IATA is highly involved in the pursuit for net zero aviation. Um, just wondering if you think that Well, if, if you could explain what net zero is and whether you think it goes far enough to really tackle the, the issues we face with um, aviation sustainability. So at the moment, our, our commitment is for net zero CO2 emissions. So it's important to clarify that it's, uh, it's not net zero all emissions, it's CO2. Uh, CO2 is definitely our biggest uh, enemy at the moment. CO2 emissions last in the atmosphere for hundreds or thousands of years. So you, me, and everyone listening will be long gone and our CO2 emissions will still be there for the generations of our kids and grandkids and those. So, so it is very concerning. So our number one priority is CO2 emissions. Uh, taking a decision to get to net zero is a huge challenge. So I do think that our challenges are going far enough. Uh, at the moment, because just doing that is very, very difficult. I think we need to keep laser focused on tackling our CO2 emissions as a, as a first priority. Uh, what net zero CO2 emission means is, it basically means we will try to reduce as much CO2 emissions as we can on, on the source. And we do that by flying more efficiently, both with aircraft technology and operations. So we, we use less energy and thereby consume less fuel and thereby produce less CO2 emissions. Um, we also substitute uh, our fuel on existing aircraft with fuels which are carbon neutral in nature, so or, or semi-carbon neutral. Uh, so these are fuels that will, over their life cycle, would have absorbed uh, a very similar quantity of CO2 as they emit when we burn them. So over the life cycle of that fuel, that CO2 will be compensated. We are also exploring solutions where we will fly without emitting any CO2. So aircraft that can fly on hydrogen, uh, electric aircraft for the very small uh, uh, range and very short passenger capacity, but it's part of the solution. And then we will have uh, residual emissions. So, so we will not be able to tackle everything with this. And those residual emissions we need to capture back through you know, credible offsets or Uh, carbon capture. So that is what net zero means. It means that on average, we're not putting any more CO2 into the atmosphere and whatever we're putting is being compensated elsewhere. So out of the solutions that you just described, which of those, if any, do you think are going to be most important for the next decade or so of action? I think all of them. Uh, uh, there is, so if you look at, at our net zero roadmaps or strategy, Uh, sustainable aviation fuels account for a very large part of it, so the majority. But I think that we need to fight on all fronts. Uh, and you know, if we manage to reduce the energy use in flight by seven percent, that is a lot less fuel we need to produce and burn. So that is just as that that is just as important as producing a sustainable fuel. Uh, at the same time, 
doing progress in SAF doesn't mean that we have to delay any progress on flying on zero carbon emissions. I think that will have to be the end goal for many applications to actually remove the CO2 from the operations. So we need to advance this as fast as possible. So I don't think that there is, uh, I mean, it, I, I wouldn't say, yeah, they, they are all complementary. That's what I'm trying to say. I don't think it's one or the other. Uh, the focus is on everything because they are all interconnected and they all affect each other. Sure. So what are IATA's views on including non-CO2 effects in net zero aviation or moving towards, as uh, Nikhil from Roland Berger said, about true zero aviation, so CO2 and non-CO2? Yeah, I mean, we in our, in our roadmaps, we uh, in, in the introduction of our roadmaps, we acknowledge uh, non-CO2 emissions, contrary to what Roland Berger said, because they said IATA doesn't mention non-CO2 emissions, because we are mentioning that in, in the very first introduction part, we mentioned that non-CO2 emissions should be tackled as well. We also have a non-CO2 emissions position paper out there. Uh, so some of the comments on that uh, on that report are a little bit misleading, you know, or, or misinformed rather. Uh, but uh, definitely, I mean, flying on absolutely zero emissions, honestly, it's going to be uh, very difficult, right? Because when we talk about non-CO2 emissions, what are we talking about? We're talking about water vapor. <laughs> we're talking about NOx emissions. We're talking about uh, uh, SOx. So there are some that we can tackle a bit more easily than others. So SOx emissions comes from sulfur, sulfur in the fuel, uh, low sulfur fuels or sustainable aviation fuels or hydrogen will tackle that. So that, okay, fine. You know, NOx emissions come from the combustion of the fuel at high temperature. Uh, they have nothing to do with the actual fuel. They have something to do with the high temperature processes. So those we can mitigate by better combustion technologies, by using uh, electric airplanes, hydrogen airplanes with fuel cells, uh, even combusting the hydrogen on a jet engine will reduce NOx emissions, but it will not eliminate them, right? So that's, we can reduce them, but it's going to be very difficult to fly through zero NOx. Water vapor, even if you replace it with hydrogen, we will have water vapor. So it's going to be very difficult to get rid of the water vapor. And then the secondary effects like contrails, uh, and I, I think we will speak more about this. You know, this is something that we are actively researching. There are a lot of airlines that are doing trials. Uh, today, we've got, you know, four or five airlines or more that are doing different trials. Can we avoid these regions? Can we do this? We at Tayata are investigating sensors. So uh, th there are, there's a lot of initiatives going on. There are research projects uh, that are involving airlines, OEMs, uh, the scientific community. So it is it is a very active area. We cannot put right now a target on non-CO2 uh, because it's just, it is very complicated. I think we will speak more about that, but it definitely is in our priorities to, to be able to reduce non-CO2 emissions as well. Regarding the avoidance of contrails, um, how does IATA view this? Is everyone at IATA of the same opinion or is there a spectrum of opinions? No, I think I think that, uh, so they, they, we have a position paper, it's on our website. And on that position paper, we are acknowledging as IATA, as an organization, that non-CO2 emissions and contrails uh, are on average warming, that, uh, you know, it is, it is an issue. We don't want to be putting stuff there that it's warming so it is it is sort of widely recognized now when it comes about avoiding it it becomes a bit tricky so i think we can all agree that it would be great to avoid controls you know in in theory that's that's a good idea yeah uh particularly if we manage to solve some things but but the the thing where where we are a bit concerned about is all the 
gaps that still exist to be able to do this. Uh, and I will enumerate a few of them, right? So, for example, if if you want to avoid a control, first of all, you need to know if that control is going to be very warming, very cooling, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, this is very hard to do today. A control is a cloud. So to be able to assess the climate impact of a single cloud, it is very difficult. It doesn't matter if the cloud was made by an aircraft or if it's a natural forming cloud, you know, or, or weather systems or, or models are, are not that accurate and the uncertainties are very, very large, right? So uh, it, it's, it's so, okay, that's one point. Second point is we need to be able to know exactly where that country will be created. And this is also challenging. We we know we can predict control prone areas. This has been done for many years and it's possible, but those areas are very large and they are not representative of reality. So I will give you an example. Uh, maybe I'll give you a couple of analogies. So one is you can tell, okay, um, more or less over Bavaria, you know, Munich, <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's going to be controls created with high, high likelihood. Okay, fine, but when we look at in situ measurements from aircraft that are flying with sensors, we see that the control prone areas are about 150 kilometers in horizontal extension. So we are predicting an area of 1,000, 2,000 kilometers where we say maybe a control will be created. And sure enough, if you fly through the middle of that area, you might create a control. But those areas are much, much, much smaller. So if we want to make this operational, we really need to improve on our capacity to model where these areas are. So an analogy is like, the weather forecast might tell you, you know, it will rain today. And sometimes they get it wrong, <laughs> but it will tell you well, it's going to be cloudy. It's going to rain at about 11 a.m. But it will not tell you there's going to be a cloud over your house today at this time. We don't have that resolution, right? So, uh, and this is for clouds. A country is a cloud. So we are improving on these models. There is a lot of progress, but there's still a lot of uh, work that has to be done to be able to do avoidance in an operational way. Experimentally, we can do it. We can fly an airplane through a prone region. We can generate the control. We can see it. Uh, but one thing is experiments. Another thing is operationalize it. And we need to differentiate between these two. Right. One takeaway from the panel discussion in Madrid was that we need more collaboration between the scientific community and industry. Where do we stand there today? Uh, where is it working great? And where could we improve? Yeah, so uh, it is definitely, I mean, in IATA, we are not climate scientists, you know, so we're talking about countries, very highly difficult topic. Uh, you know, we're talking about microphysics of clouds and you know, radiative forcing of individual clouds. It's, it's very difficult. We cannot do it on our own. So we are actually collaborating at the moment with a uh, uh, many institutions. So the MIT, Steve Barrett, which uh, you spoke to, uh, we're, we're collaborating with uh, Imperial College, we're, with Leeds University, with the World Meteorological Organization, with the OEM, so Boeing and Airbus. So this is definitely the first thing that we did when we started looking at this more seriously is let's speak to the climate scientists, let's speak to the meteorologists, let's speak to the OEMs, let's see what we can actually do today and to the ENSPs. Because if I just sit in my office and try to figure it out on my own, I will not be able to do this. So collaboration is super, super important. Uh, at Ayata, we are doing this. We are speaking to all these people to try to figure out what it is that we can do. Uh, as I said, we're not climate scientists. We don't manufacture airplanes. We don't make fuel. We fly the airplanes. So as an organization that has 300 airline members and our members are flying all the time, how can we 
how can we be a, a, a factor to help analyze this problem? And one of the things that we come up with is perhaps we can give more data. Perhaps we can put sensors on our aircraft that will measure humidity. Uh, this is already happening, by the way, uh, but we can put more sensors on our aircraft that can measure humidity and can help the scientists to get the science straight. And this is one of the things that we are doing at the moment. Yeah, I think it's, it's really important to just emphasize that, that collaboration is just going to be so key going forward. And I think this nicely leads on to Stephen's question from uh, last week, which was, do you see the prospects for a global solution to contrails and contrail avoidance and or coordinated regional approaches? Um, yeah, thanks, uh, Steve, <laughs> for, <laughs> for that. No, you did I, say it was a difficult one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, see what you have to say. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that it's something that will grow over time, right? So uh, I think that, and we're seeing it now. Like local experiments have happened before. So over Germany, the Myocaria did one in the US. And I think these experiments should continue. It's a bit easier to do it on a controlled airspace that's controlled by a state, for example, than collab like we, we should collaborate. I know, but if we want to do it fast, we need to start with local, take the learnings from that and then start doing like uh, interregional uh, trials for sure. Uh, also, another thing we need to understand is that the countries affect different states differently because they form at different latitudes, right? So they are a lot more common in the mid latitude, so over the US, over Europe, then they will be around the equator, for example. So whatever we think that we can do in Europe at the US might not necessarily be the same thing that they will do, you know, on countries that are near the equator because the likelihood of control formation is less. So so it, it's sort of something that we need to to also understand. But definitely I think it's it's about looking for global solutions. Uh, some of them might not be practical, if I'm honest. You know, we we and, and these are kind of the things that we need to understand. The airspace is already very packed uh, at the moment, right? And there are things that are closing airspace. So there's there are wars, uh, there are military exercises, there's weather. You know, there are uh, areas where you have military bases and you cannot fly over them. So the the, the airspace is already very patchy. Uh, there are already congestions and so on. Now. If on top of that, we put the restriction of, okay, we will close this area because there is an ISSR there, which by the way, we need to identify accurately, as I said, <laughs> we close an area of the airspace, then we really need to be careful of evaluating the system-wide implications of that. Because now I'm not creating CO2 for one flight. I might be creating extra CO2 for a whole network. And that can be very, very uh, damaging. You know, So we need to be very, very careful that we are not jumping on solutions that will actually have a detrimental climate effect. Because the, remember, the end goal of everyone is to avoid the planet from getting you know, above one and a half degrees. And last year was 1.46 or something degrees, right? So, so we definitely want to be careful uh, and you know, uh, not, be, not create any harm. So anyways, my this question that yes, regional coordination is important, but we also need to assess how practical this will be and any potential consequences for that. Yeah. Okay. I think what Stephen may respond to this <laughs> uh, could be potentially that the approach that they are taking is real time and, uh, and they are doing tactical deviations. And I think the unique point of their approach is that they are actually using observations, uh, you know, contrasts that you see on satellite images already and then you try to act on really short notice. Is that something, given the problems that you just laid out with regards to, you mentioned the uncertainties around the climate impact, but also the, the weather prediction, 
Um, is that something in light of this approach that um, is more promising then? Um, to be honest, I don't know. I, I am familiar with their research and I think it's great what they're doing. But again, they are experiments and it has limitations too. So on one hand, we go back to the fact of you know blocking a whole airspace because uh, if you only divert one flight, but then 10 pass through there, then you create, you know, controls anyway. So what was the point in deviating that flight? You know, you have diminishing returns. Uh, there are things that we don't know still. So in an ISSR region, what is the water vapor on that? So the water vapor budget. So if I have one flight and create one control, then if I have two, three flights, am I going to create two, three controls or was all the water vapor condensed into that one control? Uh, we don't know that, you know, we need to figure it out. So so I think that these, these things are are promising they're good experiments but they still have limitations then the other thing is the verification with satellites i mean very good because you can look at the image but uh still differentiating a contrail a cloud from a natural cirrus cloud is difficult right they can only perceive this after about two hours from the time the control has been created. So two hours after the cloud will grow and then you can pick it with the image. Then you have to be able to match that cloud to a specific flight that flew two hours behind. Now, they are doing trials. Google did so similar trials. It's not impossible, but at the moment, it's still something that has to be has to improve so that we can make sure that that specific flight at that specific altitude created that specific contrail. And then we need to understand what the whole ecosystem around it looks like. Yeah. It's really interesting that you mentioned the the overlapping of of aircraft exhaust plumes because like that's literally my research area is to to see what we can do in terms of like exploiting those effects of if there's a finite water budget in a certain region of the atmosphere can we fly not just one or two aircraft through there but what about if we fly 10 through there yeah surely those contrails will have diminishing returns in terms of their size and persistence and probably result in climate impact as well and the same goes for NOx because the more NOx you're uh, putting into a region the more that region becomes saturated and therefore leads to less efficient ozone production so I think yes it's important to state that it's it's a lot more nuanced than just saying let's block a region because you might form a contrail there's exactly (laughs) yeah not not just from a scientific perspective but like you were saying also operationally as well this is not something that a lot of air traffic managers would want to have on top of everything else that they have to deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, and I think um, th- there's also, and I, I know I'm, I'm sort of highlighting on some of the challenges, but uh, I don't want to sound like a, <laughs> a pessimistic or a denialist. I'm not. I think that all of these experiments are, are good and there are learnings that we are learning a lot from them and we should continue to experiment, right? But uh, But I'm highlighting some of the learnings that we're having. But the other thing is that we don't understand is what is the counterfactual scenario? Uh, a little bit to your point. So, so we, we have an ISSR region that would have formed a cloud if, if the air was a little bit more uh, you know, full of particles, but it's too pure. It doesn't form the cloud. So we avoid flights going through there. And then what happens to that region later on? Does it dissipate? Will it form a serious cloud anyway? You know, just further down the line, will, will it be... Uh, uh, aircraft-induced cirrus cl- clouds that will get formed by the particles emissions of aircraft, but not directly flying through there, but that are still on the air. So all of these things we don't understand. So maybe we are avoiding this SSR to avoid this contrast, blocking an airspace, creating more traffic, you know, moving the aircraft to a region where they might create a contrail. We don't know that. And then a cirrus clouds 
get forms anyway. You know, uh, we don't understand it. You know, so so I think that uh, that it, it's something that sounds very simple in practice, and and we do we are exploring it. We do believe that we need to keep looking for these opportunities, but there's a lot of things we need to understand still. Looking at this level of certainty or uncertainty that we're dealing with here right now, I'm just wondering. You mentioned that there are four or you know, around about four airlines that are actually trialing this. Um, is this enough at this point of certainty? Given we, we do have some certainty about uh, about this effect already. And I'm wondering, uh, the number of four airlines sounds very little in, in light of um, how certain we already are with regards to the problem. How do you look at this? Shouldn't we be trialing this much more? Or what is your outlook for, for 2024? It depends on what certainty we're talking about. Uh, some people would say four airlines is too much uh, because they would say, you know, the, we, we cannot predict the ISSR regions so accurately today. So why are we moving flights around and I'm and failing? You know, like if you look at the results, uh, the success rate is, is not terrible, but it's not great. You know, we're talking success rates of maybe half. Half of the diversions were successful, half were not. Some we don't know how to quantify. So we're kind of experimenting on things that are difficult to validate, difficult to experiment, perhaps emitting more CO2 emissions. So so some people could argue that four is too many. Some people could argue and say, no, we need more because the more experiments we do, the more we will learn. Okay, I, I think that that is that is a valid point. But there are some things that we already know and maybe more experiments might not give us more answers. So for example, the humidity field in the upper atmosphere. So what is the humidity levels? That is something that we are getting right now from satellite data, and it's not very accurate. So when you read uh, papers, and it, this is not IATA's data, these are publications that are online. So Girens, I think 2020, uh, an MIT study in 2023, I believe, they looked at a comparison between satellite data and in-situ measurements. Uh, they don't correlate, right? So you you have very large errors in the humidity when you compare in situ measurements with satellites. So if we're using this as our entry point to detect where the ISSR regions are, you know, and we're getting them wrong half of the time, then is it that what should be what like the activity that we should be doing now is it trying to avoid more and more and more, or is it trying to improve the humidity field so that then we can do more avoidance, so that then we can, you know. I don't know. It's an open question, but uh, but I, I feel that it could be argued uh, on both ways. Yeah. <laughs> Do you not think that the operational trials, or of course, I guess it's kind of in the name, but like most of the benefit that we get out of doing these trials is we're learning more about the operational feasibility of the concept as opposed to proving the science or proving whether it, because we can use satellite data for that. That's something which doesn't require us to actually fly aircraft is something that we can do anyway based on pre-existing contrails. Yeah, definitely on the operational side, we are learning a lot of things. So, I mean, I, I'm not saying we shouldn't do more. I, I'm saying we should keep doing it, you yeah. know, but uh, and we should keep learning and maybe learning different regions and so on. So there, there are a lot of things to be done. Uh, maybe trying different fuel compositions, maybe, you know, so, and these things are happening and we should continue for sure. So, uh, but yeah, but on the, on the satellite uh, comment, I, I do disagree. I do think um, we do need more measurements. Uh, the, the models that we have, the resolution that we have is, is not good enough to be able to do this operationally. Yeah. Okay. So do you think, 
I mean, you mentioned it earlier about the increase in the number of sensors we have on aircraft. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the the IARGOS project, in which yes. we've got a number of different A340 aircraft, which I think it's for the last 20 years or so, 20 or 30 years, they've been operating these aircraft and taking measurements in flight at cruise altitude on humidity, chemistry, uh, the chemical composition. Um, so do you think that there's a lot more scope for uh, sensing to increase on aircraft in the next decade or so? Do you think that this is going to be a key area of progress? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. I mean, the, the IAGOS program has, um, what, like nine or ten aircraft? Yeah. It's definitely not enough. Okay. Uh, a lot of what we know today about ISSR is through the IAGOS program. So we are uh, forever grateful with the team for having done that. Uh, some of the things I have quoted you now, an ISSR region is about 150 kilometers, you know, plus minus 250. We know that thanks to IAGOS. Uh, the studies that have correlated satellite data to in-situ measurements, thanks to IAGOS, right? So so a lot of the things we know today about ISSR regions, control formation, and so on, are thanks to the IAGOS program. Now, nine aircraft in the planet, you know, taking humidity at altitude, definitely not enough. Uh, we need more. I don't think we need every single aircraft, definitely not, but we need just as much aircraft as we can um, to be able to improve the models, right? So we want to minimize the amount of sensors by maximizing the modeling output. We don't know what that number is, but um, some people believe it's in the order of magnitude of tenths per region, right? So 30, 40, 50 aircraft, you know, in Europe, 20, yeah. 30, 40, North America, et cetera, et cetera. So we're not talking about hundreds or thousands. Uh, so it is. It, it, this is a very sort of, uh, you know, a finger in the air number, you know? so don't don't take it uh, as as a rule. But we're still assessing that. But we believe that that this is something that we need to be doing a lot more of, for sure. Twenty to thirty aircraft doesn't doesn't sound like that much in the grand scheme of things. I was wondering, you mentioned um, also efforts from IATA uh, going on that that try to gather more in-situ data. Is this related to IAGOS or are these different kinds of activities to increase the number of data available? As far as I know, IAGOS is open source data, right? And would this data that's being gathered within your initiative also be open source? So we are work, We are talking to IAGOS, of course, uh, and we're trying to figure out how this would work. So the idea is that the data will be given to the Met offices, so that they can use that to improve their models, right? So it's not uh, it's not something that that I mean, you can give me all the data. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> you know, like, we need to give it to the people that know what to do with it, right? Uh, so th there are other examples. So the World Meteorological Organization with IATA have uh, fitted sensors on aircraft. There's about 130 in the U.S. and there's a few others in Europe as well. Uh, and these sensors, they mainly take humidity readings at low altitude, so during takeoff and landing and descent. Uh, and the sensors are providing data today to the Met Office, and they, this data has been used to predict, you know, thunderstorms, fog, uh, heavy rain, etc. There's data being collected on winds, data being collected on pressure, and all this data has been used for by the local Met offices for weather prediction. So we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. We're trying to expand it and say, okay, can we capitalize on existing systems like Hayegos, like this, it's called AMDAR program from the WMO, uh, but to put sensors that will be able to give us the readability that we need at altitude 
uh, and that can help us to predict ISSR regions better. And also, one of the one of the main variables that affect the assessment of the climate impact of a control is the humidity, right? So, so getting more humidity data will not only help us to find where the contours will be formed, it will also allow us to improve our prediction as to how warming or how cooling these contours are. So it's sort of a, a win-win on both, on both cases. Yeah, gathering this data will definitely move forward all the efforts that are going on here. And yet we are engineers, we are used to deal with uncertainty, right? And we have to uh, push all the buttons in parallel to to get uh, to more sustainable um, aviation, right? I'm wondering, uh, moving a little bit the conversation to, to regulation, even though you've pointed out, you know, um, the, the hesitations that there are still and, uh, and the many open questions uh, to be answered. But I was wondering, since you have such a good overview of the ecosystem, um, how you view, for example, the approach of the European Commission, who uh, went out with a recent call in the Innovation Fund um, and actually stated, well, contracts are a problem and asked for solutions. Is this the right timing and the right approach at this point in time? So the right approach to look for solutions, yes. I mean, there's there's never a <laughs> there's never a bad time looking for solutions. Uh, innovation projects or research projects are always welcome, and there are a few large projects in in Europe. Uh, so definitely, I think that looking for solutions either operationally, technologically, fuel, uh, engine technology, uh, absolutely. Like we we should be we should be doing these kind of things. Yeah. Okay, uh, but uh, still drilling down a little bit. I mean, uh, of course, trying to find solutions is always good, but there's always opportunity cost. Um, you've mentioned um, other initiatives in the beginning, right? Um, where the money could be could be spent on. So, do you still think that um, that this is something we should um, spend the money on right now, given all the uncertainties that you pointed out? Well, if we if we don't uh, do the research, we will not be able to reduce the uncertainties, right? So, I mean, I I feel like uh, we we should be careful not to be, um, I mean, maybe distracted is a strong word, right? But diverted from the CO2, because imagine what a tragedy it would be if we suddenly divert more and more resources to non-CO2, and then we try to do this control thing, and then da da. And then we do that at the expense of developing a hydrogen airplane, for example, right? I mean, when the hydrogen airplane could actually have a much, much more important environmental impact because we're getting rid of the CO2 emissions, right? Or or stuff. So I don't think that we should, by one minute, sacrifice one for the other. I think our priority is CO2. CO2, we have the certainty. We have the certainty of how warming it is. We know how long it lasts in the atmosphere for. We know what the climate effect is. So we should definitely keep that as a priority. But uh, I do believe that we we need to progress on the science of the non CO2 emissions as well. Okay, we will we will progress uh, on that uh, regard. And this year is the year also when within the MRV we want to come up with a way to actually quantify the non CO2 effects, right? Given all these uncertainties that that are still out there and and the open questions what is your level of confidence that we'll get to a good solution for quantifying those effects right now it's very low uh if i'm honest i'm uh because i mean i've just pointed out to some of the uncertainties right so uh some of the studies that i've i've mentioned say that using reanalysis data to quantify non-CO2 effects 
can lead to errors of you know 50%, 70%, 80%, right? So then when we are monitoring non-suit effects, what, what are we actually monitoring? What we are doing is we are using reanalysis data uh, and aircraft trajectory to estimate what the non-CO2 impact is. But we know from publications, this is not a, this is not IATA data, this is a IATA data, this is a peer-reviewed publications, that right now the data that we have is insufficient to be able to do this accurately. So what we'll be doing is we will be estimating some non-CO2 effects of flights. Uh, we will get it wrong, uh, and then we will have a number. But what does this number mean? You know, is this is this actually very meaningful? And then when we try to quantify for the climate impact of this, the the uncertainty now the uncertainty on that climate impact is very large, right? So we know it's warming. We know like all of these things we know. We know there are things that we know, but there are other things that we don't know. And I mean, if if you look at the recent literature, just global average sort of uh, climate impact radiative forcing of of contrails. Some people say eight, eight uh, you know, milliwatts per square meter. Some say 140. Some say 60. Some say 30. So which number of these are we going to take for a, for an MRV? And then when you try to do this on individual flight, uh, a recent study by uh, Tio et al. say like that uncertainty can be 200 times greater <laughs> individual flights. So so we will come up with a number. We will estimate a number and we will report it. But how meaningful is that number? And, and what are we going to do with that, right? Uh, so to me, the the thing that we should prioritize now is definitely sort of help the the science get it right. Uh, we can quantify a number, we can do it. And there, there are lots of publications there that have quantified global uh, non-CO2 effects. But the uncertainty is just going to be so great that I don't know how meaningful it's going to be, yeah. You've mentioned Roger Teo just now and uh, this leads to our tradition of passing on the ball because um next week we're going to speak to to Roger and um yeah I'm putting you on the spot here but maybe there is something maybe there's a question that you'd like us to pass on yeah I mean maybe you can ask him about this thing I just mentioned right uh, uh by the way I, I really I really enjoy reading his papers but uh, you can ask him about uh, the uncertainty of individual flight uh, radiative forcing versus uh, a whole fleet and how how this compares yeah that's a good one Kieran what do you think yeah I think I think that's a very fair question <laughs> <laughs> especially due to the the effects that we you talked about earlier where I mean, usually we're using large-scale models to capture global climate impact of contrails, but when it comes to an individual flight, you have to really model these subgrid-scale processes. So exactly. yeah. the presence of existing ice clouds, um, the impact they have on the water vapor budget in in that subgrid-scale area, and the implications that will have for um, the formation of contrails, the persistence of contrails, and the climate impact of contrails. That's right. Yeah. Earlier, we've we've mentioned um, you've mentioned a paper um, that that I'm looking at right now. We will link it in the show notes. I think for the listeners, also quite interesting. Uh, it's from IATA about uh, non-CO2 aviation emissions and the standpoint. And I think this would be a nice uh, follow-up uh, reading. So we'll put it in the show notes. Um, my last question to you would be: um, What do you see? will happen in this year, 2024, uh, with regards to contrail management. Is there any kind of event you're looking forward to or is there any kind of experiment you're looking forward to? 
Um, hmm, that's a yeah, that's a good question. There there are many things many things happening. So uh, I know of some uh, initiatives that are assessing the potential non-CO2 effects of using SAF, different SAF blends. This has been researched, uh, you know, before, but the the results are inconclusive. Some results say that it can be better, some it's the same, some a bit worse. So I know there's more flight campaigns this year. I, I really want to see what happens there. Uh, Airbus is conducting some studies as well. Uh, I think the project is called Condor. They're flying a, a glider with a hydrogen gas turbine and they're, uh, you know, putting the water vapor there and trying to analyze the non-CO2 effects of that. That's going to be very interesting to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the airlines are continuing doing the trials. Uh, so also want to, we want to learn more about, you know, their experience operationally, as you said, Kieran, you know, were they able to, to do the tactical avoidance every time? Were they not? You know, were they able to verify? I think right now, one of the big, big keys on, on this uh, diversion procedures is uh, verification. How do we actually verify that we've been successful? Uh, it's challenging, right? So, um, and there are a, a couple of events. So ICAO will have a, a, a conference on non-CO2 at the end of July, I believe. So that should be that should be quite interesting. Uh, and we at Ayata are hoping to also do uh, another publication on this topic, uh, main, mainly speaking about the work that we have been doing, uh, part of the sensor, some of the things we have spoken about here. So that's going to be exciting too. Alejandro, this has been great. This has been a very sharp discussion, um, very to the point, and uh, you, you have laid out your opinions very clearly. Uh, so thanks a lot for that. And um, yeah, like I said, we'll link this one paper in the show notes. Hopefully we see you again in Miami. Yeah, excellent. Later this year. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, big thanks from my side. No, thank you, Marius. It's been a really interesting discussion. Uh, thank you, Kieran, as well. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can catch up in, in Miami. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Alejandro. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Maybe see you soon. <laughs>